When the two sides in the anarchy concluded the Treaty of Winchester in 1153, King Stephen of England took the newly designated heir to his throne, Henry of Arjon, from Winchester to London. And here, according to the poetic contemporary chronicler of the time, Henry of Huntington, quote, he was received with joy by enormous crowds and splendid processions. Thus, by God's mercy, peace dawned on the ruined realm of England, putting end to its troubled night, unquote. But if the end of the anarchy promised the new dawn for England, that dawn was actually met by troubled weather. As the news came of the death of King Stephen, and word was sent out to young King Henry to come claim his throne, it was unfortunately in the December of 1154. Heavy storms and gales gripped northern Europe, and the king made his way to the Normandy coast to try to sail to get his throne, but God seemed to be working against him, and as he waited, the sea churned and boiled, and the winds howled. Six weeks passed since Stephen had died, six weeks where technically no king was around in England, but the country was being ruled by the steady hand of Theobald, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, and unlike the last four kings of England, or arguably the last half dozen kings of England, if we're being honest, there was no mad campaign of shenanigans, violence, and attempts to storm the treasury in Winchester after this one died. The succession had been agreed upon, and while, yes, this was again a usurpation of the line of succession, it worked. Henry was the agreed heir, and added to that, quote, no man dared do other than good, for he was held in great awe, unquote. Eventually, on December the 7th, the weather calmed, marginally. The sea was still rough beyond compare, and the risks of crossing were incredibly high. With King Henry was his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, de Jure, Queen of England and former Queen of France, she was seven months pregnant and heavy with child, and with them both was their first-born son, young Prince William. Sailing now on this sea would be a terrible risk, but the king was in haste. He stepped aboard a ship, took his family, and trusting to the protection of the saints and the judgment of the Almighty, he set off. The crossing was brutal the journey taking 24 hours from Barfleur to Osterham, a port near Southampton. And the little flotilla of ships he was travelling with had been scattered in the heavy swells and strong winds. But a repeat of the disaster of the white ship had been prevented, and to this small port just south of the New Forest, the new King of England and his family arrived in the land they were set to rule. King Henry then followed the new rules of succession, he rode immediately through the New Forest and made straight to Winchester, gaining control of the royal treasury and receiving homage from the feudal lords and barons of England. Archbishop Theobald had summoned them here, having heard the king was on his way, and it is said the nobility of England were, according to the ever-poetic Henry of Huntington, quote, quaking like a bed of reeds in the wind for fear and anxiety, unquote. Why were they so nervous? Well, this new king 
had just displayed formidable courage to brave such weather, arriving unexpectedly like this. Speed, as history will prove, was Henry II's greatest political and military weapon. From Winchester, having gathered up more followers from the bishops and the nobles of England, regardless of the weather, Henry and his party now made a procession to London. Here the city greeted him with, quote, transports of joy, unquote, and with his coming being the first time in over a century, if not longer, that a king of England had taken the throne and there'd not been some seriously political shenanigans or even fighting involved, it is said that the Londoners called him Henry the Peacemaker. He made an immediate impact upon the city, and Londoners being Londoners noticed every detail, including that Henry was dressed in the later style of short cloak to be found popular amidst the French nobility. It's probably from London that Henry's nickname, Kurt Mantle, or short cloak, came from. The royal party arrived in London and discovered that the former royal apartments and palace in Westminster were, well... They were a bit of a mess, really. Ever since the Londoners had looted and wrecked the place... <clears throat> no, well, no, sorry. Ever since they had resisted the forces of that nasty Empress Matilda... Oh, that's mother, and he does rather like it. Um, let's just say, anyway, since then, Westminster was in a somewhat dilapidated state, and this would not do for this royal party. As it was, the king and queen and his son and a whole bunch of them lodged on the Surrey shore, opposite the Tower of London, the old Saxon palace of Bermondsey, nearby to London Bridge and the newly built Bermondsey Abbey. On Sunday, the 19th day of December, 1154, Queen Eleanor and King Henry, second of his name, were crowned in Westminster Abbey to great pomp and majesty the ritual overseen by Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury. Around him, the great and good of England watched, and according to the sources at the time, Henry, quote, was blessed as king with great joy and many crying for happiness and splendidly enthroned, unquote. And after this, the king and queen led a procession out of Westminster along the road north that contained the church of St. Mary Lestrand. And here, the citizens of London had poured out to greet their newly anointed king and queen in large profusion and ran alongside the royal party. And according to Henry of Huntington, the great crowds of Londoners cried aloud, Wes hail, Wes hail, and vivat rex, vivat rex. And in this glory did the reigns of the mighty Plantagenet dynasty begin. Hi, my name is Saul, and you're listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city from the point of view of Londoners at the time. We've reached the year 1155, and it's time to look at how the city coped with the massive changes brought about by the arrival of this new king, Henry II. Welcome then to chapter 66 of the story... Almost, nobles.
one of the hardest things we'll be facing from this part of the story of London onwards is the sheer amount of things and stuff going on in and around London and the proliferation of sources about this. This means that trying to account for everything is going to be very hard moving forward. Luckily for me as writer and narrator is the fact that I focus on all things London. This allows me to ignore vast reams of stuff that does not relate to the city and its people. This is not a general historical podcast. I am trying to remain focused on London. This does not mean I'll be giving up on mentioning events outside of the city, however. Given London's role in English politics, eh, that would be impossible. But this is just a salutary reminder to any listeners that, as always, if in describing details of what was going on elsewhere, I rush over a plethora of fascinating minute, then it simply is because I am focusing upon this city as my priority. But what was England like at the beginning of the reign of Henry II? Henry had inherited a land in a state of flux. As recently as the reign of Henry I, where we'd seen a Norman king seek to ease the sense of imposition upon the native population by marrying someone called Edith, the princess of the line of Saxon kings, there had been a clear division during his reign and in the reigns beforehand. On the one hand, you had the Norman magnates and nobles who ruled the country. Norman laws held sway over the court, and Norman French was the language of the royal court, and it would be for at least another century and change. And then to add to the confusion, technically, Latin was the language of government. The native population spoke what we now call Middle English, a foreign tongue to this ruling class, although there is some evidence to suggest that some of the nobility were occasionally learning it or trying to learn it. But we are still a full century away from major works of literature being written in this vernacular and English beginning its long and slow but steady rise to becoming the leviathan of a language it is today. In this land, the king ruled all. He was the supreme authority, and he answered only to God himself. There exists no parliament, and the governing of the land was carried out by the king and a great council of lords, spiritual and temporal, to aid him, along with a few key officials who rise in service of the king or these lords, and by their hands was the nation manifest. Obviously, loyalty to the throne was the principal qualification to gaining position at this time. Competency was secondary. It was nice and all, but it was often not a deal-breaker. The conditions I've described in London in the previous chapters, and you'll see later in this one and in future chapters, where families would, the moment they gain any power or any position or any revenue stream, seek to immediately grab as many other members of their families into it and place them in positions to exploit it, was universal. Nepotism was everything. Nepotism was the default setting for this entire country, and it's the principal organizing method of the society in this era. The kings were also the source of all justice in this land, and Henry II would, as his long reign continued, reform the legal codes of England several times, 
in many ways, one of King Henry II's greatest legacies was in fact that long after his empire was lost and long after his dynasty died out, his laws remained. And the bedrock and principle of his laws remain to this day, not just in Britain, but you also see them in the United States of America, Canada, Australia, and many other places. This authority over justice and the law was born out from the divinity of kings and the belief of the divinity of kings. The symbols of state themselves, the wearing of a crown, the sitting upon a throne, the anointing with holy oil, these rituals sanctified the holder of this power. Kings were semi-divine figures, and this cannot be underestimated. The touch of a king from Henry I onwards was believed to provide curative powers for certain conditions. Ultimately, in terms of real politics, the king was responsible for appointing the chief officers of church and state, for dictating the foreign policy of the land, to declare war or make peace. He was the chief diplomat and supreme commander of all military forces. And to pay for this, the entire economy of the land was focused upon the raising of royal revenues, tithes and taxes to fund the state. Into all of this fits London, the largest city of his realm, and I will stress though time and again, it was not the capital of England as England would not have a capital for at least another half century. England had no central seat of government. The court of the king was ultimately itinerant, moving from castle to castle and province to province with the monarch, and usually taking the chief administrative offices and departments with him. During the reign of Henry II, however, the king would seek to locate those departments in Westminster, which would become, during his lifetime, the centre of royal bureaucracy and justice, a legacy the region would hold on to for dear life and never let go of. Because of this, Henry II's reign will see Westminster Palace and next door's Westminster Abbey become the centre of the ritualistic and ceremonial aspects of the rulership of the kings of England, which will help get London become capital for sure, but it would also help itself due to the actions of those in London, responding to and reacting to the, the actions of others, which we'll cover in the next few chapters. The principal position in the king's government was to become that of the Justicar, who exercised judicial and political power on behalf of the king and often became regent during his long absences. The Justicar was in effect the head of the court of the Exchequer, which was responsible for collecting royal revenues and monies. This was the auditing office for royal finances. In most basic terms, the actual bullion and coins the royal treasury collected was located in the lower exchequer, protected by a strong armed guard, and in the upper exchequer, the officials in charge of tallying such things would convene around what was called the board of the exchequer, a large table spread with a checkered cloth. It's designed to quote historian Alison Weir, quote, incorporating an abacus that was used to check the returns of the sheriffs, unquote. Remember, as I said previously, the Shire Reeves, or sheriffs of England, were not law enforcers, but primarily tax collectors. 
The taxes they collected then went to the exchequer and they counted up the money coming in and the whole thing was recorded on wooden tally sticks where notches were made to work out how much money was going in and out and all these transactions were then placed on long scrolls of parchments that were tightly wrapped and stored in long pipes. And this is what we call the pipe rolls. Below the justica came the office of the Chancellor, the man responsible for running the Royal Secretariat, a.k.a. the Chancery. This was the office in charge of administrative, legal and non-financial matters. Yes, the Chancellor of England at this time was not in charge of the cash, the Royal Chief Justice was. Confused? Don't worry, that's normal. Now, the Chancellors of England tended to be, as we've seen with the likes of Bishop Maurice of London or the ever-so-dodgy Ranald Flambard, the King's Chaplain and was in charge of the Royal Chapel. And because of this, the Chancellor of England was usually a Lord Spiritual, a Bishop or Archbishop of England. The Chancellor would also possess the Royal Seal, the seal used to authenticate all royal documents and writs. And the royal seal, by the way, was created for a very simple reason. Not all kings could write, you see. Basically, the chancellor was responsible for administrating the royal government, which meant that, yes, they sat in on the meetings of the exchequer, but mostly they were responsible for overseeing the issuing of land grants and charters, called the Letters Patent, and they were also responsible for issuing the secret instructions to royal officials, known as the Letters Close. And in about 50 years from now, the royal officials would start to record these in documents known as the Patent Rolls and the Close Rolls. And we, mere historians of this era, will scan closely the names and transactions upon the pipe rolls, the patent rolls, and the close rolls to learn more about the history of this era. Who did what and when and why? By what little details hidden in these documents do we see about the running of the nation? While it is always the focus of big history documentaries and television to focus on the big stuff, what did the kings do? What were the wars? What were the politics? It is in the overlooked names and records on these sources that we see the true engine of the state. And we gain names and from them work out who they were and what they did. And from this we illuminate countless stories and gain innumerable insights. But of course, this then also provides us with extraordinary detail and rather than spend 24 hours of solid commentary just trying to explain to you what we've discovered on the pipe patent and close rolls of the reign of the kings of England I will try to explain what was in there in brief but I hope entertaining detail what was going on in London and what we can learn about the city and when it came to who ran London, who was in charge of London during the early part of the reign of Henry II, we must, alas, return to the murky territory of the oligarchs and their families. And here we begin to see London, while no longer a commune, had gained something additional. 
Towards the end of King Stephen's reign, we saw the likes of Andrew Bikinti and Osborne Eightpence in charge of everything, but now new men appear in the list of the powerful men of the city. Some of these new names rose out of the ranks of the loyal feudal barons of the king, men like Richard de Lucy, who would go on to become the Royal Chief Justice, or Justicar, and also Constable of the White Tower of London. While others we see on the list were manifestations of what one historian of London called, quote, entrenched citizenry. And one of these names is one I mentioned in passing previously, Theodoric, son of Durman. And his story is fascinating. Theodoric's connection to London goes way back, all the way back to the reign of William the Conqueror. The king, William the Conqueror, had restored a hide of land in nearby Essex to a man called Durman, who is assumed to be the father of the Theodoric. And for some reason, the deed of this transaction ended up in the records of the Corporation of London, suggesting all the way back then, perhaps Dioman was a resident of London. Now, this land was eventually passed to Westminster Abbey, but all indications seem to suggest that Dioman was an Anglo-Saxon who quickly won favour with the Norman regime and whose sons and grandsons would become strong in the city's history, leading benefactors of the nuns of Clerkenwell and holding posts like canons of St. Paul's. And here we have the character of Theodoric, son of Diamond, who's a sheriff of London. We do know that when Henry II took over, one of the new sheriffs of London was our old friend, Gervais of Cornhill, along with somebody called John, son of Ralph. And with the ending of commune status, however, the position of London's Justicar was ended to a degree, and the sheriff became the end-all be-all. But since the post of sheriff was to basically oversee the collection of taxes, over the next few years there seemed to have been some tinkering with the political setup in the city. Henry II was an innovator and liked to shake things up on occasion. But there was also the need for the king to balance his known interests with that of the city. And you see this manifest by the fact that between 1157 and 1159, a committee of sheriffs appears to have been set up and they seem to represent differing strands of the powers of London. And when you look at the members of the committee, you get a nice slice of life into how the oligarchical class of London was working. I mean, you have Rainer, son of Deringer. He's the second or third generation London oligarchical dynasty. His son would become a sheriff and his grandson would become mayor around the 2020s. And next to Rainer, you've got Britmar of Haverhill, who was a newcomer into the city of English descent, but his son, William of Haverhill, was to be one of the most eminent citizens of the next generation. Now, both these men seem to follow a similar pattern. They owned land in the home counties with a major townhouse and city property as their base in London. To these two, we had three more members of this committee of sheriffs, a man called Joyce the Vinter, who seemed to be representing the trade that had begun to prosper under Henry II, more of that in a bit. And then you have somebody called Geoffrey Bursarius, who was a financier, we're pretty sure. And then someone called Richard Veal, whose surname appears a few times in the decades ahead as his family move up the ladder, see them as up-and-coming oligarchs. This committee of sheriffs didn't last for too long, only two years, and by the end of the decade, Gervais of Cornhill held the title again. 
But as you can see, the oligarchs of London continued to run things. And above all, these men had regular and close dealings with the crown. So whereas they were not nobles, they were very firmly in charge of the city. What alternatives were there to these nepotistic and insular rich men for Londoners to aspire to, especially in the light of the new charter granted to the city by Henry II? Well, as I suggested last chapter, with the passions displayed by the impact of Rahiri of Smithfield, you start seeing a desire for the residents of London to find their voice. And in 1155, you truly begin to see the first manifestation of this, an embodiment of all those Rahiri-era passions made real and non-religious. Because it is in 1155 you see the issuing of the first charter to what was to become one of the great bedrocks of the citizens of London in the ages to come. You see the creation of the first livery company. For those who have never lived in the city of London or studied its intricate or majestic history, one can easily miss the role and impact of the livery companies and what they were going to have on London to come. Even today, myriad are the residents of this fine city who stride its streets and have no idea of the importance of the livery companies upon the very fabric of London. But no other institutions were to play such a significant role upon the city in the next few hundred years as these. What were they? In short, the livery companies was the name given to London's respective craft guilds and trade guilds. They earned their name because members would wear distinctive uniforms during formal occasions. Livery was the name given to what retainers of noblemen would wear to show their loyalty to their patron. By extension, livery companies were trade guilds whose members had ceremonial attire that allowed all to see their loyalty to their profession and their association of peers. Each livery company would style itself, quote, the worshipful guild of, unquote, and then add whatever profession they belong to, to the title. And in 1155, we have the Royal Charter incorporating the very first of these companies, the worshipful guild of weavers. The Weavers Company did not actually start here. We have a record of them being mentioned originally all the way back in documents pertaining to Henry I in 1130. There, in the middle of the impact upon the city of London by Rahiri, we see the first mention recorded in the pipe roll of 1130 of this company. There is an entry, a payment of £16 being made to the king by one Robert Leveston on behalf of the weavers of London. And now here we are, 25 years later, and King Henry II is granting them a charter. What did that actually mean? Well, to quote the document and King Henry II himself, Quote, know that I have conceded to the weavers of London to hold their guild in London with all the liberties and customs which they had in the time of King Henry, my grandfather, unquote. So here we see a confirmation of what was. Henry I had clearly recognized their existence 
Henry II had put it in writing. It's worth noting that the word guild here was G-I-L-D, not the later spelling G-U-I-L-D. And guild, G-I-L-D, meant payment. And the basic deal was if a group of men made a payment to the crown, they could gain or have confirmed rights, privileges and liberties. And this is what appears the weavers of London had been doing since 1130, and they now had it put in writing in 1155. Those rights and liberties sound limited, but they were powerful if used correctly. The weavers could include the right to elect bailiffs, the formal term of a manager or overseer, whose job it would be to help the company supervise the work of their craft by their members, setting standards for everyone to follow. They would also collect the firm or tax required to have these rights and to be a member and punish defaulters. And in effect, the charter allowed the company of weavers establish a monopoly over the profession in London and control the members and non-members who practiced weaving in London through their own court. It was the first of the livery companies to get royal charter. Many more were to join it in the years to come. And that charter, by the way, was signed by the one and only Thomas Beckett, but more on his story in a later chapter. The growth of the Weavers Guild does suggest that London was beginning to grow economically again. And indeed, in one respect, Henry II was good for London because, because he was not just King of England. He was also Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou. And this meant that London was now part of something bigger, something much bigger. In 1154, the Angevin lands owned by King Henry and Queen Eleanor began far, far to the south. Bierne and Gascony, who bordered with Toulouse in the east and Navarre and Aragon in the south, is where we start. And from here in the ancient city of Bordeaux, one could travel north to La Rochelle and inland to Aquitaine, which bordered on Burgundy and keep carrying north. The only part of the French west coast not under their control was Brittany, and their lands included Anjon, then to the north of Marne, and then to the north of Normandy. Yes, you could travel from effectively the borders of the Mediterranean all the way to the Channel and still be within this kingdom. Now, as I will cover in much greater detail in future chapters, London was now able to access the trade from this giant realm, and thus increased profits began to be made. This, in some way, does begin to address the long, slow economic contraction inflicted upon London, which I covered in huge detail back in chapter 52. London was starting the process of recovery from the twin impacts of both the deprivation and institutionalized theft brought upon it by its Danish and then Norman kings, but also from the loss of slavery as its primary export. In many ways, London losing its status as a slaving hub was a good thing and probably inevitable. But in and around 1157, we begin to see London regain a new position as a trade hub, hearkening back to the smaller in scale but larger in significance era of Offer the Great, which I covered in detail all the way back in Chapter 6. Whew. And yet, it must be said, despite later Victorian historians' insistence that this was the growth of a new English merchants, allow me to say it wasn't. 
The impact of the economic privations which inflicted upon London and the English economy by the Normans just carried on. London's merchants were indeed growing in wealth, but they were still, at best, low-level championship teams trying to play against Premier League top-tier teams. Foreign merchants were still the dominant player in London. We know that the French wine merchants had been training in London since the reign of Edward the Confessor, and also that from the era of Canute and his sons, Danish merchants had a presence in London. The Danish merchants had actually had their own trading centre, a hall built near London's Docklands and what is today Upper Thames Street. This hall was located roughly where Cannon Street Station stands today. Yet as the Danish influence in England and the North Sea diminished over the following century, other nationalities took their place. Back in 1125, William of Malmesbury said in passing that the walls of London contained goods brought by merchants from many countries, but he gave special mention to those who arrived in London from the Holy Roman Empire. Those Germanic merchants were growing in number, and he added that if there was a bad harvest, something that seemed common enough during the privations of the anarchy, then those Germans would be happy to supply surplus foodstuffs to the city to mitigate starvation and hunger. The chances are these Germanic merchants would utilise the hall in possession of the Danish merchants. They were all strangers in a strange land working together. And I mention this because in 1157 there was a change in ownership of that hall. The Danes sold their share of the hall down by Dowgate Wharf to the Germans. Its location, by the way, was significant. Dowgate is where the river that had since Roman times flowed through the walled city and entered the Thames. I am, of course, talking about the River Walbrook. The Walbrook was really London's first dividing line. It has been suggested that the earlier position of Stallers of London had actually been divided into two, those to the west side of the Walbrook and those to the east side. And from this tradition comes the first true division of London. The river had dictated the city seemingly developed two distinct economies, characters and customs. And if you look back at the previous episodes of the story of London, this does seem to be the case. To the west of the River Walbrook, the city generally tended to be a tad more populous and more prosperous. To the west is where St. Paul's was, where the Saxon kings had placed their maybe residence, which later became Baynard's Castle, and where you see Westcheap or Cheapside, the land-based market, be located. On the other side, you've got more dock-based trade. You've got the less populated side of London, with its smaller market, Eastcheap. And until the rise of places like the new suburb of Portsoken just seemed to be less desirable. Of course, this division wasn't entirely strict, but you do see it in things like Westside's Thomas Beckett against Eastside's Gervais of Cornhill, Westcheap Market versus Eastcheap Market. Cornhill versus Ludgate Hill. Anyway, if you return to where the Walbrook met the Thames, you return to those German merchants whose takeover of the building led it to be known briefly as the House zu Kölner, denoting that many of these merchants had seemingly begun to come from Cologne. 
In time, not too far ahead, as more merchants from the Germanic coast used it, its name would become the House of Teutons, and then later it would grow to become the Steelyard, one of the largest regions of foreign merchanting power in London. But that lay in the future. This era also saw another foreign power also to begin to impact upon the city of London dramatically. But they're a weird one. I'm talking about the Knights Templar. After years of being quiet, located in the suburb of Holborn, where they'd just been basically very nice neighbours and residents, things changed. And around 1159 and 1160, this changed drastically. We know there was a new master of the temple in London, a man called Richard de Hastings, a man born in Warwickshire to Norman nobility. But the role and power of the Knights Templar was changing in England, and that was simply due to the king. Henry II clearly saw the Templars as an important order and began to utilise them in matters diplomatic and financial. And this is where, in 1159, the king granted the Templars a gift and started, by accident, one of the longest and most contentious legal battles in the history of the city. Henry II awarded the Templars a site on the banks of the Fleet River, opposite Castle Baynard. And here they had the power to erect a watermill and a dwelling house, or Meshuol, by Fleet Street, and the right to nominate the local priest to the nearby church of St. Clement Danes, or as in the exact words, quote, to gain an advowson, unquote. And so they had this big concentration of stuff being given exactly where the River Fleet met the River Thames. But the Templars had plans, big plans, and proof of this is found in what they did immediately after they got this grant. It then appears that as well as building their water wheel, the Templars constructed two water gates on either side of the Fleet River, which restricted the flow and allowed them to begin reclaiming land from the river and basically gaining holdings and encroaching upon their neighbours' holdings. And as we saw in both the Port Soken issue and also in the fight over fishing rights on the River Thames, thou dost not infringe upon the rights of Londoners and expect them not to litigate. And so a bevy of legal actions were thrown at the Templar Knights by the residents of London and the soak holders of the region. In the subsequent plethora of litigation caused by this, plaintiffs claimed that the Fleet River had always been open to navigation and that the Templars' new great gates and water wheel prevented this. I will not mention much more about the ongoing legal case against the imposition of water gates on the River Fleet, except to say the following. We will return to how this legal issue is resolved, but not for a while. This was going to drag on for nearly 150 years. No matter what anyone says, this has got to be one of the great legal battles in London's history. But the king's patronage of the Templars saw the nature and profile of this group change. Henry seems to have been a great benefactor of the knights, for he gave them lands in other parts of England, in return for increased revenues, of course. Around 1155, it's mentioned in the pipe rolls that they owed the crown a silver mark, paid for them from the revenues of the 
new territories they had, and it was designated as, quote, arms newly constituted, unquote. Their involvement in matters financial is also revealed by the tale of one Gilbert de Augustin, Knights Templar, who is going to be detected engaging in acts of embezzlement against the crown uh, a few years from now and severely punished by his master. We know that over the next 20 years, the Knights Templar were to be given not just this territory in London, but also lands in Essex, Kent, Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Salop, Oxfordshire, Cornwall, Lincolnshire, and Yorkshire. These were not small holdings in many cases. And the Knights divided their holdings into districts, apparently just uh, easier to organize the revenues. And one of these is called the Balliol of London. Because it was in London that they headquartered themselves. And it was felt that their holdings in Holborn were too modest for so great an order. And so a new headquarters was located. And here is where that Watergate and uh, land reclamation fits within the master plan of the Knights. Because just two years after they set up those gates, in 1161, the Knights Templar decided to move from Holborn to a nicer location beside the River Thames and beside the River Fleet, a region of London we call the middle and inner temple. This was not an easily done thing. To facilitate the move, the Templars had to construct a new road specific for this purpose to lead from the Templars' old headquarters to their new headquarters. At the time, it was, of course, called New Street. I mean, what other name could it be called? But today, it stands as Chancery Lane. And a measure of the size and scale of the move can be attested to the fact that the Knights Templar took possession of Temple Bar region here in 1161, but the Temple Church was not to be consecrated for another 24 years. The establishment of Temple Bar, a time a simple set of posts linked by a chain, marked also the physical manifestation of a long-established boundary between Westminster and London. To this day, on state occasions, the ruling monarch is accepted into London at Temple Bar. A few years previous to all of this, in Winchester, during the negotiations of how the anarchy would end, the nobles of England referred to Londoners as almost nobles, a statement referring to the geopolitical power of London and England at this time. So here we are, less than a decade since, and were they? Were they really? Well, for the oligarchs, the answer would be yes. Well, they did not hold noble title or feudal roles. You had a growing class of landowners and men who had regular dealings with the crown, whose name appear on the pipe rolls and whose faces would be regular seen in the office of the upper exchequer. But then you also had foreigners, like those Germanic merchants with their own hall down on Dowgate, or the Templars beginning to develop a new enclave over in the west end of the city, whose names appear on the patent rolls and who alongside the declared dynasties Baynard's Castle, the Castle of the de Montefilcher just to its north, or the White Tower in the east under the royal Justicar himself. And they show that traditional feudal power structures of this land still possessed control and power over the city. And down in Westminster, the foreign king and his amazing queen ruled in majesty and glory and cold Plantagenet indifference. 
Is it hard to imagine that the residents of London could feel anything but almost noble, could feel somewhat helpless? I mean, in the summer of 1158, there was a drought brought on by a particularly dry year. And so great was the water shortage this year that someone wrote, quote, there happened so remarkable a deficiency of water in the River Thames that citizens passed through the bend of the river on foot without being wet, unquote. I think we can ascertain that while there was a drought, the actual idea of walking bank to bank without getting wet at all could contain a degree of hyperbole. I mean, the original contemporary records claimed that the lack of water was caused by an earthquake. But it seems that there had been a localised quake, which coincided with a specially dry year, and then probably at a low tide, somewhere over by Westminster and Lambeth, the river got as low as it wanted. But again, this is mentioned because previously the citizens of London could have looked up and seen this as an act of God. They don't seem to be doing that now. Yet, Somebody seemed to be worrying about the attitude of the Londoners. Henry II, in 1156, ordered the White Tower of London to be strengthened. There was no geopolitical instability in England at this time. There was no major rebellions or invasions. And yet he ordered the White Tower of London to be strengthened. Perhaps he knew that in time, the kings of England may need it. Because, as I described all the way back in chapter 10, people who feel helpless and without voice will eventually seek to gain it. And as history was to show, those improvements upon the White Tower of London were going to come in very, very handy. And that's all there is for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be aware, I've got oceans of materials coming up. Um, the reign of Henry II and the reign of all the Plantagenets is where things really step up. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a couple of double bubbles, haven't done one in a while. So there's going to be a couple of weeks where I'm dropping two episodes in a single week. Looking forward to that. Some amazing stuff, special episodes coming up. Looking particularly on how London became, how its financial market changed. Probably going to do a whole episode on Thomas Beckett because the dude is so cool and much, much more. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope I'm not confounding you all with too much information and that the story is still followable. That's my main aim. Anyway, enough of this. Thank you all for your kind words and support and the members have kept us going for another month and I will see you next week on another episode of The Story of London. Thank you. Thank you.